From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, it is truly one of the hardest things to do quitting smoking. And it's especially difficult if you try to do it without help. We'll discuss quitting smoking with a Mayo Clinic Nicotine Dependence Center expert. We will hear someone said, I was doing so well for so many years and I thought I could just have one. It's true of every person struggling with addiction. I've never heard someone struggling with addiction who didn't say, I wish I could just control the behavior that defines addiction. Also on the program, we'll learn how cochlear implants can help with hearing loss at almost any age. And we'll hear how laparoscopic surgery can be used to treat diseases of the pancreas. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, conventional wisdom says that it takes five to seven tries before you can actually quit smoking, before you can really give it up. But there's a new study out in the journal BMJ Open that says those estimates may be too low. Wow. Researchers compiled data on more than 1,200 adult smokers in Canada and found that the real average number of quit attempts before succeeding might be closer to 30. Amazing. Well, we know that nicotine is highly addictive and trying to quit smoking, especially without help, can be really difficult. Here to offer some strategies to top, stop smoking is internal medicine specialist at the Mayo Clinic Nicotine Dependence Center, Dr. John Ebert. Welcome to the program, Dr. Ebert. Good to see you. Pleasure to be here. So this drug, this chemical nicotine is truly addicting, isn't it? It truly is. Uh, there's about one in five people in this country that still smoke. 20%. That's about, yep, just but under 20%. But that's down from what? So when you looked at the 1950s, about 50% of the U.S. population was smoking. So what is it that's so great about nicotine? Why is it so addictive? So nicotine releases dopamine in the brain. And dopamine, dopamine release is very reinforcing. Um, and then there's a lot of uh, social and contextual factors. Um, it helps people cope with stress. People love to smoke. If back in the 50s, 50% of the people were smoking, that's fine. They didn't know any better. But these days, for one in five, is that what you said? One in five? Yeah, 20% of the population. To still be smoking, are they still smoking because they just don't care or because they can't quit? Great question. In fact, if you look at some of the more recent data, uh, what you'll find is that about 50% of the current smokers aren't smoking every day. So the point is, is that if in the 1950s, most of the smokers were smoking every day, we're seeing something different today. And the smokers are unique. So about 50% of the current smokers don't smoke every day. And of the ones that don't, or that ones that do smoke every day, about 50% of them smoke less than a half a pack. No kidding. Yeah. How do you not smoke every day? I mean, I would love to just smoke on, you know, on Friday <laughs> nights and have one smoke in the morning. I mean, how do people do that? Many people do. Really? And, and that's what we're seeing. And so it, it, it actually does impact the way that we communicate risk to these patients. And they may say, well, I only have one or two um, when I'm having an, an alcoholic beverage on a Friday night and then I don't need to smoke the rest of the week. And it, it also creates problems, at least behaviorally, because it's real intermittently reinforcing. And so it's almost a harder habit to d extinguish sometimes. So it doesn't take very long to get addicted to nicotine. I remember when Richard Hurt used to come on the program 
I mean, it, it it's a pack of cigarettes or a half a pack or 10 cigarettes or something. It doesn't take very long to get addicted, does it? It does not. And, and what's interesting is if you take two, if you took twins and, and you gave them a cigarette one, uh, and they both smoked the cigarette, one may have a very different response. And a lot of the differences in response between individuals are what we believe truly sets them up for a lifelong addiction. Does it make a difference if you try cigarettes when you're a teenager versus if you were to I'll start, I'll try when I'm 29 or something. Does that make a difference? Well, it's interesting because if you look at all addiction, not just tobacco, if you can keep someone off an addictive drug until the age of 25, the likelihood they'll be a lifelong user of it is almost 0%. Oh my. 99% of all addiction starts well before the age of 25. And for smoking, it's 99% starts, starts before the age of 21. And and we talk about some of the cases later. Uh, you know, a lot of the stories I hear, the smokers that come in, they started smoking when they were 11, mm-hmm. 12, 13, 14. Um, you know, Out behind the barn. Yeah, yeah, that's how addiction starts. <laughs> we're not talking about your story here. But since you brought it up, do you think that you could be one of those people that just once a month would have a cigarette with no. a drink? No, don't you think would so. go back. Yeah, have to I mean, go. it's like an alcoholic or somebody who's previously smoked said, "I just, I'll just have one." Yeah, no, don't think it would work no, for you. Uh-uh. I'd, I'd be back to back at it. And, and that's no fascinating problem. because that's what I hear. So when I'm in sitting where I'm sitting in a specialist clinic uh, treating tobacco addiction. The story will invariably exact, be exactly what you said. We will hear someone said, I was doing so well for so many years, and I thought I could just have one. Mm-hmm. It's true of every person struggling with addiction. Everybody, I've never heard someone struggling with addiction who didn't say, I wish I could just control the behavior. That defines addiction. Interesting. So uh, there are some people who are still taking up smoking. Uh, and, and who are those people? It seems like I read not so long ago that it was high school girls. Is that still true? or am So, I yeah, so we, we certainly see, um, and once again, a lot, all this initiation is happening well before the age of 21 most of the time, um, um, but we're seeing a changing demographic. So these may be non-daily smokers, but these are the smokers out there. So we're seeing a lot of non-daily smokers. I just have to ask at the, the very beginning when we were saying that uh, Canadian study, do you think, is that sound right that the number of times a person has to try to quit is 30 times? Is that closer well, to the well, truth? Isn't it, isn't it as Mark Twain says, <laughs> quitting is easy. I've done it a thousand times. <laughs> right. So maybe it's much higher than 30. And actually they gave a range that went well beyond 30. And, and I, it, that makes sense to me. It does. It, it makes sense to me because when you think about addiction, we treat it like a chronic disease. And chronic disease is characterized by relapse and remission. So they quit and then they go back. They quit and they go back. But I would think that if I was someone who was battling a nicotine addiction, that uh, uh, the average is about 30. I don't, I'm trying to think if that would be good news for me or bad news for me. Good news, like, oh my gosh, good. It takes that long for me to get the hang of this or, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get the hang of this. What's interesting is if you dig into the data a little bit more, what you find is that most quitting attempts happen at the spur of the moment, or a significant percentage of these, you know, uh, quit attempts happen at the spur of the moment. So um, there was a study that they looked at people who quit, and it wasn't about planned, you know, behavior. It wasn't about let's get you on the patch and pick a quit date. It was about I'm quitting right now because I just had a heart attack. So that's how most of quitting happens. So maybe not 30 times planned quits. Maybe some of these are spontaneous or spur of the moment. So we're going to talk about uh, more about the Nicotine Dependence Center coming up, but but briefly review for us what are your favorite uh, stop smoking aids? 
So we, nicotine replacement is a, is a really foundational sort of cornerstone of therapy. So we like to think about nicotine replacement as uh, building a bridge to a tobacco-free lifestyle. So I have a lot of patients who come in and say, and they've been smoking for 34 years, nicotine's the problem. I think we in public health have done a horrible, um, a horrible deed by saying nicotine's the demon and saying, hey, by the way, nicotine's a demon, but I'm gonna put you on four patches, give you a nasal spray and inhaler. That's a really bad and confusing message. The message is tobacco is what's gonna kill you. Two thirds of all tobacco users will die of a tobacco-related illness. And so that's powerful motivation to quit. Nicotine's not the demon. Nicotine is an aid to quitting. And if I, as a practitioner, because I've seen so many patients die from this addiction, if they're on nicotine for the rest of their life, I would consider myself successful because I just want them off the tobacco. So instead of saying nicotine is the demon, you could say nicotine is the answer. It is. It is the answer. And um, right, which is also a little bit confusing message because well, they are smoking. Well, let's start it. Yeah, well, let's start it here <laughs> right now. Nicotine is salvation for many of these patients because it is effective. Um, so we have nicotine. We have bupropion, which is Zyban or, sorry, uh, you know, Genetics. sorry, generics. Bupropion is an antidepressant that really helps with craving. Then we have varenicline. Uh, varenicline is a new molecule um, that acts very specifically on the nicotine receptors. And so those are our three main foundational drugs. All right, Dr. John Ebert, he's an expert on quitting smoking and an internal medicine specialist at the Mayo Clinic. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking about the Mayo Nicotine Dependence Center and what programs you have available to help people quit, and we're going to do a myth or matter of fact. Yeah, if I'm a longtime smoker, it's too late to quit because the damage is already done. We're going to find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with Dr. John Ebert. He's an expert on quitting smoking, and he works in the Mayo Nicotine Dependence Center. And we'll start this segment with a myth or a matter of fact. All right, Dr. Ebert, if I'm a longtime smoker, it's too late to quit because the damage is already done. Is that a myth or a fact? So that's a myth. It's never too late to quit. Um, and we see even in patients who've been smoking for 40, 50 years, when they quit smoking, we see you know 50% risk uh, reduction in cardiovascular events within the first couple of days. Uh, patients who quit smoking go back to the baseline rate of lung cancer within you know 15 years. So it's never too late to quit. Um, what I will see is here from a lot of patients is I say, you know, my cough is getting worse. Um, and when maybe, they quit. When they quit. Yeah. And so what's happening is when you smoke, you put the cilia in your lungs to sleep, and those move the, that move the mucus out. Yeah, they're the little hairs on they're the, the lining hairs. of the that's breathing tube. Yeah. That's exactly right. And then you put them to sleep with the cigarettes, and then when you quit, you, they wake up and start mobilizing that mucus. And so that, that increased cough is you're starting to clear that, um, you know, the particulate matter that you inhaled with every cigarette can take several weeks or months to clear. But it what? does go away. It does go away. All right, so I gotta ask you about when we were talking about stop smoking age, the thing that you mentioned was that nicotine is the, is the culprit, but it's also potentially the answer. Mm -hmm. So what about vaping and e-cigarettes? Do they have nicotine in them, don't so they, they? So they do have nicotine, and, and they are probably 96% safer than conventional cigarettes. Because uh, the tobacco isn't present. Because the tobacco is, you don't have any burned tobacco products that you're inhaling. 
the health concern that we have um, is that there are flavoring agents in there. And some of these flavoring agents have been shown to potentially increase the risk for cancer. Uh, it, we don't have long enough data to, to prove that, they've, uh, that they increase cancer, but at least in studies that they do in the lab, it could increase the risk for cancer. So you don't know for sure what's in an e-cigarette. There's no regulation, right? Right. It's currently not regulated. Okay. So you, first of all, you wouldn't recommend an e-cigarette for someone who never smoked. And second of all, you would not recommend vaping or e-cigarettes as a method to help people quit. So it, it's, a, it's a complicated issue. We sometimes confuse the two messages. There's one message of whether or not I, as a physician, recommend it to my individual patient versus whether or not I recommend that people should have access to it. One's a public health question, the other one's an individual counseling with my mm -hmm. patient question. So I may be someone who says I think people should have access to them at a public health level, meaning I don't wanna make them illegal, don't take them away, but I would never recommend it to my individual patient because if I recommended that as treatment to my patient in 15 years, they get lung cancer from the e-cigarette, that might be on me. I'm not saying it is because it's hard to figure out whether it was the smoking that caused it or the e-cigarette but but I don't want to create more problems for the patients my patients all the things that I recommend I know are safe and are you know FDA regulated there's no regulation here so I don't know what's in it truly all right well we want to talk about the nicotine dependence center and the programs that you have available tell us about a, an interesting patient that you've seen recently and treated Okay, so uh, one of the most exciting experiences I have is with the residential treatment program that we have, and we actually have these patients come in on a Friday, and they're with us for an entire oh, sure. week, and they leave the next Friday, and, and, and so what we see is people that have really been down that road of trying to quit multiple times. They've tried to quit. 30 plus. Road. 30 <laughs> plus. Yeah, I agreed. And, and, not, and now they're in there. And, you know, I see so many patients there you know, that I can really see what kind of grip and what kind of hold tobacco really has, having not been, I was a chewer, actually. Mm -hmm. I was not a cigarette smoker, so I never really understood what that the hold that cigarette smoking had on people until I started doing that program, and then I really began to appreciate it. But, but the, what's so gratifying for me is when they get done and, you know, you'll see them months later, they've quit, and, and they say, you saved my life, you know, and you saved my life. And what's amazing to me, and it's hard for me to communicate this to someone who's still currently smoking, is I, and, and, and Tom may, you know, uh, kind of reflect on this, but nobody ever regrets quitting smoking. Uh, they never say, boy, I wish I was still smoking. And so what's gratifying to me is they do have that perception that we've saved their life. They do have that monkey off their back, as I like to say. Um, but also it provides them an opportunity to say, I can live without cigarettes. Because I think when patients are trying to quit, their biggest struggle is, what am I going to do instead? How am I going to cope with my stress? Am I always going to feel this crummy? as I do when I'm quitting? Um, and the answer is no, but it takes time to feel better and get back to that baseline. So, um, so I think the people that I see in the residential, the people that most affect me deeply and most make me passionate about this field because you do see such a miraculous transformation. These people have been struggling with addiction for years. Yeah, so what's your success rate in the residential program? So about, about six to 12 months, we're 50%. All right. So that's some of the highest rates you see um, in the country. There's two other programs in the United States that do this type of treatment. Those are very high quit rates. The nice thing about tobacco treatment is that we see a dose response effect. 
That is, the more intense the treatment, the better the patients do. And you can't really get more intense than having someone sort of be in a residential setting for eight days. So that's the kind of treatment rates we see. All right. So if somebody didn't want to do the the whole week program, what other programs do you have? And, and tell us their success rate. So um, so it's so we're about um, 25 to 30 percent in our outpatient um, clinics uh, quit rates. And so we have an outpatient clinic you can call in and you can visit with a counselor to have some face-to-face one-on counseling those counseling sessions are supervised by me and my my other colleagues and we will write the medication prescriptions and so we have that opportunity as an outpatient if people want to come in and i presume you have uh, people who call you they try to quit they haven't been able to and they come back and they try again right we, we see a lot of people we've seen we see a lot of people coming back into the residential treatment program we've seen people two three four times in the residential treatment program um, we certainly see that in the outpatient as well now you've got all these modalities to help people smoke the different kinds of nicotine replacement how do you choose uh, or is it kind of up to the the patient you, you say here are your options for nicotine replacement you choose which one you want what I like to do is I like to talk to the patient and say, what have you tried before? That really helps me direct my therapy because we certainly have a, a lot of medications we can choose from and we use them all in combination. If I could get patients to use every one of them and they feel like they're, they could afford it, I would give them all um, because all of them work a little bit differently. I like them in combination. Um, and so what I usually start with the question is, what have you tried before? What have you found that might be effective? And then I get an understanding of how many times they've tried to quit before, and then I might make a decision about whether I combine the patch with the gum or just the gum alone or just the patch alone. I would have to imagine if someone is a smoker because they can't handle stress. I mean, that is a huge thing that you have to address on top of dealing with this addiction. So important. I agree. Thank you for mentioning that. So such a and I talk about the pharmacotherapy a lot, but so important is the behavioral treatment that goes along with that because it's the behavioral treatment combined with the pharmacotherapy that give us the best outcomes. You know, one of the most interesting things I think I heard you say today was that if you can get someone off tobacco, even if they're on nicotine for the rest of their life in some form, you feel like it's been, you've been a success. Absolutely, I've seen way too many people die from this addiction. Wow, Dr. John Ebert, he's an internal medicine specialist and he also is director, are you director of the Mayo Nicotine Dependency? I'm an associate director. Co-director. Yeah, it's associate. co-director. All right, great to have you with us. Thanks. Great information. Okay, thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn how cochlear implants can help with hearing loss. And later on in the program, an update on laparoscopic pancreatic surgery. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or maybe a topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayocliniqueradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's disease or other forms of dementia is not easy. The daily struggles can weigh heavily on everyone in the household. Mayo Clinic experts say it is critical for caregivers to take time to care for themselves. Caregivers need support from family and from the community 
to help them with this very, very difficult task. Mayo Clinic Dr. Ronald Peterson is the director of Mayo Clinic's Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. He says the task is difficult because patients need care 24-7, and sometimes their personalities may completely change. Again, the person can become angry, can become belligerent, sometimes physically aggressive, and this is very difficult to watch a loved one go through this stage. Yet the caregiver is the one who bears the brunt of that. What should caregivers do to care for themselves so they stay healthy? Dr. Peterson recommends you develop a support system that allows you to get out, take breaks, do fun activities, and exercise. Caregivers need to care for their own mental health, their own physical health, because everybody in the family relies upon them. And in other news, heat stroke is a condition caused by your body overheating, usually as a result of prolonged exposure to or physical exertion in high temperatures. It is the most serious form of heat injury and can happen if your body temperature rises to 104 degrees Fahrenheit or higher. Heat stroke requires emergency treatment. Untreated heat stroke can quickly damage your brain, heart, kidneys, and muscles. The damage worsens the longer treatment is delayed, increasing your risk of serious complications or death. So symptoms include a high body temperature, altered mental state or behavior, alteration in sweating, nausea and vomiting, flushed skin, rapid breathing, racing heart and headache. Now, heat stroke again is a medical emergency, so if you suspect it, call 911. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, as we get older, hearing loss can be a real problem. And for patients who don't get help from a hearing aid, there may be an alternative. And it's called a cochlear implant. Unlike a hearing aid that amplifies sound and directs it into your ear canal, a cochlear implant is electronic device is an electronic device that compensates for damaged or non-working parts of your inner ear. Well, here to help us understand how cochlear implants work and who might be a candidate is Mayo Clinic ear, nose, and throat specialist, Dr. Matthew Carlson. Welcome to the program, Dr. Carlson. We're so glad you're here. It's great to be here. Thank you. So technology is amazing, isn't it? And an amazing piece of technology is the cochlear implant. Tell us, tell us a little bit about this device. Sure. So you've already actually touched on some of the very important issues or some of the aspects of it. But um, there becomes a point where a person might develop more advanced hearing loss to the point where they uh, uh, basically get outside where a hearing aid can provide benefit. And when a person reaches that point, they'll be troubled with hearing, particularly in noisy situations. And um, they'll be looking for something else. And a lot of people don't know about this new, or not new technology, but about this technology called the cochlear implant. How new is this technology? So the co uh, cochlear implantation was uh, developed in the 60s and 70s, but it really wasn't until 1985 when it became FDA approved uh, for implantation in adults and 1990 for children. So even if you're... Uh, of advanced age, um, and I don't know what that is anymore. Uh, that, <laughs> I'll let you decide. <laughs> and a, a hearing aid uh, doesn't work for you. A cochlear implant is a, is a possibility even for someone who is older. That's ex that's exactly true. Actually, the FDA guidelines specify that children need to be over 12 or kids need to be over 12 months of age, but um, in many cases, we'll implant even younger than that. 
and the oldest person we've implanted at Mayo Clinic is 96 years old, and the youngest person we've ever implanted with bilateral uh, cochlear implants is four months of age. So what is this thing? So a cochlear implant is a technology that bypasses non-functioning parts of the inner ear. So the great majority of people who develop sensory neural hearing loss or nerve deafness have a problem with the inner ear hair cells. So the cochlea, which is a snail-shaped organ, has small ends of nerves that we call hair cells. And uh, secondary to maybe getting older or being exposed to medications or having a history of loud noise exposure or many other causes, a person can develop hearing loss. And the end result of all these different processes is the loss of these inner ear hair cells. So a cochlear implant is a surgical prosthesis that's surgically implanted, and it uh, involves placing a very, very small wire inside the cochlea. That wire can give a small amount of electrical current to the end, the endings of the cochlear nerve, just enough to excite them and give it, and give the perception of sound back, but not to cause uh, electrical shock or anything else like that. So in essence, it bypasses hair cells that don't function anymore and gives the brain the ability to perceive sound once again. So are you saying that folks with age-related hearing loss or with a lifetime exposure to loud noises can regain their hearing with a cochlear implant? implant? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, one of the hard things is determining for, for a patient on the outside that doesn't have a lot of background in the medical field, or perhaps uh, if they're seeing their primary care physician or somebody else who doesn't deal with cochlear implants on a regular basis, is determining candidacy. And essentially, a good rule of thumb, although not perfect, but a good rule of thumb is a candidate is someone who's already tried a hearing aid for a period of time, and perhaps they've tried and upgraded their hearing aid a couple times, but they're just not getting the, what they need, particularly if there's some background noise. And that's the time, the point in time where a, a patient should probably start thinking about the possibility of a cochlear implant and bring that to their physician to see if they're a candidate. I would have to imagine if you said four months old, the youngest person to receive a cochlear implant, that must make a big difference in that child's, I mean, if they can hear from four months to 12 months old, that must make a big difference. It's a substan- it changes a person's life significantly. If the, the trajectory of a person, if they have hearing loss or they don't, is, or a person who has a complete deafness or they don't at a young age is really defined significantly by receiving a cochlear implant or not. So if you have severe or advanced sensory or hearing loss and you uh, uh, don't gain benefit from hearing aids and you don't undergo an implant, you have to have special schooling and special education. You'll actually that might change uh, where you end up in life and where you work and things like that in some circumstances. A cochlear implant, a cochlear implant if placed at a very young age, can put a, a child in mainstream education and mainstream jobs. They'll develop normal speech and language in most circumstances, and it's a really a life-changing operation for a lot of these patients. We always say that there's been a lot of advances in the last 30 or 40 years in medicine, but in our opinion, our biased opinion, this is the, the largest miracle that, uh, that we think has uh, come. It's the only sense that we can reliably restore, and we can do so in a pretty good way. Now, are you, because i do not 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 quite sure I understand, are you saying that any child who is deaf can receive a cochlear implant, any and every child? So that's a very good, uh, that's a very good thing to uh, point to bring up. So there has to be some basic uh, anatomy that uh, is present for a cochlear implant to okay. work. But to really summarize it and make it uh, gener- uh, speak generically, Essentially, you have to have a cochlea, which is the organ of hearing, because the electrode goes into the cochlea. And then there has to be a wire between the cochlea and the brain so that that electrical signal can go to the brain. And then the child has to have a certain amount of development to be able to accept and process and use that sound. So there are some prerequisites 
but the great majority of children have those features, and the great majority of children with hmm. complete deafness can benefit from cochlear implantation. Again, a life-changing uh, surgery. So I assume this must come in different sizes, if you can put one in a four-month-old and an adult. It's actually interesting. The implants themselves, there's two parts to it. One part goes underneath the scalp, and then there's a wire that goes down through the mastoid, which is the bone behind the ear, into the cochlea. And uh, the, the implanted part is very, very small, and there's a, basically there's a lot of redundancy on the electrode that goes in. So even, if the, even with the head growing and things like that, uh, the device doesn't need to be exchanged to compensate for a growing head or something like that. The other thing that's very interesting to point out is that um, uh, we commonly say that the human head is very close to adult size by the age of seven or eight. And that's why sometimes children look kind of funny is because they have such large heads compared to their bodies. And so while the rest of the body will grow substantially, the skull and the ear is actually not really, really far away from adult size, even at a very young age. So there uh, is an external part to this too, right? I mean, it's not completely invisible. You can tell when someone has a cochlear implant. That's exactly right. So there's two, um, there's different ways you can kind of break down the components of a cochlear implant, but broadly speaking, there's an implanted part, and the implanted part uh, is called the receiver stimulator, and that sits under, underneath the scalp and that it has a wire that goes into the mastoid bone behind the ear and into the cochlea. That communicates with an external device through a radio fr uh, frequency signal, so it's not a wire that goes through the skin and there's no pull or um, you know, wire it's coming wireless. out. Wireless, yeah. exactly. And it comes to an external part. The external part and the internal part are coupled together through a magnet. So the RF uh, antenna on the inside and the outside, speak to, they're lined up by placing a magnet on both uh, sides, and you can actually place the magnet on the external scalp and then on top of that, besides the, the RF coil, there's a part that sits on the level of the ear. So it almost looks like an average hearing aid with a small wire going off to a magnet that sticks to the, uh, to the scalp. But I would say that if you walked by an average person with a cochlear implant, you would just probably think they had a hearing aid. What are the, what's the future hold for cochlear implants? So I think there's a lot of very interesting directions that cochlear implants will take. One thing is, initially with cochlear implantation, particularly in 1985, uh, everybody had to be completely deaf to receive an implant because we didn't want to hurt people, we only wanted to help people. And we've learned that over time that we can even implant people with greater degrees of residual hearing and they can still outperform what they would do if they had some hearing. So more and more patients with some degree of hearing are actually being implanted. And as our technologies get better, our surgeries get better, I think we'll keep pushing that envelope to benefit patients. Amazing technology for someone who can't hear, hear very well of virtually any age, cochlear implants. Dr. Matt Carlson, ear, nose, and throat specialist, Mayo Clinic, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the latest advances in laparoscopic pancreatic surgery. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Laparoscopy. That's the procedure that refers to looking inside your body with a, a scope, a laparoscope. And it's a rigid tube with a light and a camera which can project those images onto a monitor or a computer screen that everybody in the operating room can see. And Pretty now, amazing. Yeah, and now instead of a big incision in your abdomen to take out whatever, the gallbladder, <laughs> the pancreas, you know, take Whatever's pick, in there and needs to come out. Surgeons can do a lot of different surgeries through a scope, a few small incisions instead of a big one. Well, here to talk about laparoscopic surgery and what it can be used for is Mayo Clinic General Surgeon, Dr. Michael Kendrick. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kendrick. Good to have you, you with us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. All right. I have a story. 
So a couple of years ago, um, one of my best friends from medical school, a kid from Iowa, Harlan, Iowa. You've probably never been to Harlan, Harlan Iowa, but not I'm many sure people have. I'm sure he's wonderful. Yeah. Great guy uh, living down in uh, Arizona, retired. He called and he said, uh, you know, I had, I've had a, a cough and a cold and uh, it wouldn't go away. And I went in to see the physician and um, they ended up doing a, a CT scan mm. and they found a big mass on my pancreas. And of course, everyone was thinking, good night, Irene. You know, that this, he's got cancer of the pancreas. And he said, um, what do you think I should do? And he said, I want to come up there. And I said, I think you should come up here. And uh, so I talked to Dr. Kendrick, and Dr. Kendrick looked at the uh, imaging, and he had this baseball-sized mass on his pancreas. And uh, we didn't know for sure what it was, and I said, well, do you think we should do a biopsy? And he said, it doesn't matter. It's got to come out of there. And so that was two years ago, Dr. Kendrick. And uh, my friend, uh, Stan, we used to call him the reader because we would we'd have an anatomy. <laughs> when we were doing dissecting the, the cadaver, someone would read the book, the handbook, and the rest of us would do the dissection. <laughs> and Stan he was, was so the we reader? called the reader. <laughs> okay. Yep, and the reader is alive and well, thanks to Dr. Kendrick, and he took that mass out without opening his abdomen. Dr. Kendrick, it was it's fabulous, yeah. and, and Stan is so grateful, and, and so am I. So tell us about this, and, and how'd you learn how to do it, and what can you do through the scope? So first let me tell you that pancreas cancer alone is the third leading cause of cancer death, and in 2020 it should be the second. So wow. it's, a, it's a big, important problem and growing, unfortunately. And management of that has always been surgery. Surgery is the only chance for cure. But importantly, they need other therapy as well. They need chemotherapy, and sometimes they need radiation therapy. So anything we can do surgically that can minimize the effects of the operation and allow them to get their other treatment is really critical. And so that's where laparoscopic surgery came in. As you know, we, we started that late 80s doing laparoscopic gallbladder removals, and it's advanced to probably the most uh, complex operation in the abdomen, which is what's called a Whipple procedure, the head of the pancreas. The other side of the pancreas is in your friend, and, and my uh, friend and patient uh, was the other end. But all of those can be done laparoscopic. It's amazing. Um, technology. We've got high-definition screens. I actually see better than I can open unless I'm wearing cheaters Amazing. and magnifying glasses and extra lights everywhere. And it's a lot easier on the residents, too, because you don't have to hold those retractors. They don't have to hold the retractors, <laughs> but, the, but the key thing um, is that everybody can see just as good as a surgeon, which, is, which has been a great help because there's a, there's a team in the operating room, and I think it's, the operation goes a lot smoother where everybody's that engaged. But Dr. Shive said usually when people think pancreas cancer, Cancer, pancreatic cancer. Good night, Irene. I think is what uh, you said. And so, the fact that someone can survive it is that attributed to this surgery makes it easier to remove that cancer. It's it's a great question. So we're trying to study that. Actually, Mayo Clinic leads the world in the pancreatic resections of the head done laparoscopic, which is kind of the hardest operation. And so we have a lot of data now, and we've shown all the things that we expected with laparoscopic procedures in terms of less wound, less pain, quicker recovery, less blood loss shorter hospital stay but what really mattered was the cancer outcomes and with the data we have now we, we at least know that they're more likely to get to chemotherapy at all and they're more likely to get to chemotherapy earlier and there is some suggestion that the pattern of recurrence favors 
um, laparoscopic approaches. So there may be something there, but we're going to need thousands of patients before we can prove that. But there is suspicion that um, the laparoscopic approach will help even cancer patients. Is it because it's easier for the patient? You don't have to recover from this traumatic surgery in addition to fighting cancer? Yeah, it, it is. And, and we're actually, there's a lot of scientific things undergoing about evaluating the body stress to the, the operation. We know a huge incision across the abdomen and, and removing pancreas and a little intestine and things is very stressful to the body. And if we can do that with a smaller incision, at least the data we have so far suggests that the, the body doesn't see as much stress. And so that's why they probably recover earlier. And that may have some favorable outcomes for the pancreas. But the, the interesting thing is there's, there's a lot of other lesions and things that happen in the pancreas that are benign that could become cancer. And so we're making a lot of progress with that in, in terms of operating minimally invasive on people that don't have cancer yet but may. And so they get through that much easier, and that's more beneficial for them to get back to their life and their job and things they need to do. So can you do, use, the, use the scope to do a biopsy? We can, but now, um, you know, and we did in the past surgical biopsies were not uncommon, but um, now we do endoscopy where they put a scope down the mouth into the stomach and on the end of that they've got an ultrasound probe and they, the endoscopist now can get the biopsies when we need them. But in some situations, when it's a big mass in the pancreas and it looks classic on CT, we actually don't recommend biopsies. There is some small risk with that, but um, cancer is not something to mess with, and we yeah. get that out. And I think our listeners need to understand that there's cancer of the pancreas and there's cancer of the pancreas. So if uh, someone comes in and the their cancer has already spread to other organs, then they're probably not a candidate for surgery. And then, for example, in Stan's case, it was a low-grade uh, tumor of the, of the pancreas. Chris. And so just removing, he didn't need chemotherapy, didn't Correct. need radiation. Um, the, the other thing I don't quite know is how, so you, the incision that you make is maybe an inch and a half long was the longest one. How did you get a baseball sized tumor out through that little hole? Yeah, well, I'm not allowed to tell you that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so uh, actually when we get done resecting the specimen on the inside, then we put it in a little bag and believe it or not, the, the tissues are fairly soft um, and they'll come out a smaller hole than you would think. Um, kind of like childbirth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. So you can take out the gallbladder. You can take out uh, tumors of the pancreas. You can take out the whole pancreas, right? Take out the whole pancreas. We can do stomach, um, liver, intestines. Yeah, most patients are candidate for minimally invasive approaches, but some aren't. It just kind of depends on what operations they've had before and, and the extent of their tumor. But like you said, there are some benign tumors that have a really straightforward to take out and don't need other treatment. And then there's other conditions where it's a, a little bit bigger deal, where surgery is not helpful. And how many of these have you done? We've done over 400 of the of the Whipple procedure, and then that's the other the end big the, one. That's Where, the big one, yeah. and then the other the other side, uh, 500 or so. Yeah. And right. again, what is the contrast in the recovery time? A regular surgery is. Yeah, it, usually when we've looked, there's they're in the hospital two days less, so usually four or five days versus six, seven, sometimes even eight with the bigger incision. But the bigger things are their quality of life. I mean, they come back in a month and they look like they maybe had their gallbladder out. They don't look like they've had such a mag, uh, you know, the magnitude of operation that we do. And and that we think is because of the, the body just not feeling the stress. So blood loss is less, the wound infection rates are less, the pain is less, they use less narcotics. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, Dr. Michael Kendrick, general surgeon and laparoscopist, and thanks so much for taking care of my friend, the reader. Thank you. That's our program for this week. 
For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We will be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our writer and social media editor for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.